Today, I am looking to examples from Europe that might be useful in considering how Britain can deal with its colonial past. I am speaking to Sabu Kanabana, who I met when he was presenting his paper on the decolonization of public spaces. Sibu discusses how playfulness and fluidity can move us out of our fixed positions and binary thinking, helping to resolve conflict. He gives examples from his postdoctoral research as a linguistic anthropologist and lecturer in post-colonial studies at Gwent University in Belgium and Open University in the Netherlands. I began by asking him to give us the background of how decolonization had started as a movement in Belgium. Uh, Congo wasn't the only country that had a colonial relationship with Belgium in the 19th and 20th century, but also Rwanda and Burundi starting in 1918. The African diaspora in Belgium is much more diverse than just the Congolese, that it is in these networks that the decolonization calls started very strongly. They were really transnational, multiracial also uh, networks and that there emerged some kind of interconnectedness between black people. One of the first uh, efforts in the early um, year 2000, 2003, 2004, was all about the recognition of the African war effort. So that being the involvement of African troops in the First World War and the Second World War, and how this contribution has been completely uh, forgotten. Not only forgotten, but I mean, these soldiers have never been, never got a pension or have never been recognized as having contributed to, uh, to the history of Europe. That story specifically triggered a debate. I mean, I'm talking about 20 years ago. That's interesting because the Commonwealth War Graves Commission here has just apologized in Parliament, and that doesn't happen very often in Britain, for not going back and letting the relatives of the soldiers in East Africa know where their loved ones were buried and they never received pensions. Every year there is what we call on the 11th of November, there are these armistice celebrations where the end of the First World War is celebrated and where you have a huge monument of the unknown soldier in the city center. The king is there and the prime minister and they put some flowers there and there are different international representatives, Canada, etc. But the Congolese are completely absent in that story, and they are not, they are not, they are not part of, of, uh, of these celebrations. We have this official monument in the center, basically for white people, basically to recognize white history, and that is completely officialized, and I mean, it's, it's also completely legitimized because the king is there and the prime ministers. I mean, that's like the official ceremony. Now, they've put up in the, in the 1970s, they've put up a monument of the African campaigns somewhere in a suburb. There is no official ceremony in the suburbs. So these monuments, that second monument has been built basically to divide, to say like, oh, let just black people go there. And so it, it, it segregates in a way uh, the, the, a story that is a common story. But still, the monument is reappropriated in order to tell a different story. And that's, that's something that I really think is fascinating, reappropriated by the African diaspora, uh, because I see these monuments as symbols, um, as science, to not necessarily reproduce colonialism, but also to challenge it. And that's how I understand monuments, generally speaking, uh, and, and how I see the potential of these monuments to, to trigger a debate. Just problematizing these monuments triggers a conversation. 
Um, Often the monuments are seen as a place of conflict, but you actually mm -hmm. mentioned how they could actually be a place of dialogue. It's not that it's only for black people. So it's, it's a space where everybody's welcome, contrary to the official space. This refers to the First World War. And the First World War, it's not, I mean, you would think, oh, it was just about five soldiers. No, not at all. I mean, there were... 40,000 people involved in, in, I mean, it's similar to what the Belgians did in Europe. So if you look at how many people were directly involved as soldiers or carriers or nurses uh, in the war effort in Europe, and you count the Belgians, the white Belgians, and then you look at what happened at the African front, which is like between Congo and Tanzania, because Tanzania was German at the time, you have the same amount of people who are who died and, and who were involved in these wars. Moreover, the, the African theater was was crucial in how the war uh, would would end up because Africa was, was important for the resources necessary to feed the war the war machine. So when Germany lost Tabora, where the Congolese played a huge or huge role in in, in nineteen sixteen, that that triggered the end of the war, that, that in a way impacted how the war would end. It only happened once, it's 2018, that the king came to the suburbs to recognize. I mean, that was like the, the centenary of, uh, of the end of the First World War, and then the king went there. Uh, but that was just a, a, a one shot. Now we, we go back to business as usual, which is we just only recognize the white uh, war effort and we forget about the African war effort. Is that an example, you mentioned the word of repressive tolerance to mute the efforts of more action? Maybe it's not about getting recognition from the king or from state institutions. That also problematize the fact that we still focus on the, on the glorifying of war. In a way these monuments glorify war. For me, the fact that it brings people together, not, not just white and black people, but also a very diverse group of people of African descent who share a, a common concern and who realize that, that, that we need to, to retell our history in order to uh, challenge specific forms of discrimination that exist today. That if we don't do that, we will, it will always seem that fighting racism is somehow trying to be nice. That it's not about being nice. It's really about challenging global structures of power. So I, I'm not even convinced about the fact that the presence of the king matters. There was also Derek Bell who talk, talks about interest, interest convergence theory in a way that powerful people will only comply with the uh, calls from, from, let's say, oppressed people if it serves their own interests. Right. So that's that's interest convergence theory. So there, there will be no way that people with power will give up their power because you make a good argument. That doesn't happen. That's that's just that's not happening. The only way they will do is because they think, oh, there's something to we have some interests in in giving some power away or in sharing some 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 forms of power. And that is basically what the king did, right? They tried to look good in the process. They realized there was there were certain sensitivities that were not relevant ten years ago that are relevant today. So they find ways in order to make sure that they appear as caring about these sensitivities. That's what happens. But the same thing with the Lumumba Square. The Lumumba Square. I mean, besides the fact that it's just a piece 
of a, of a sidewalk or a pavement. It's actually a taxi, a taxi stop, um, a taxi station. So, so this is already super problematic because I mean, activists really wanted to have a square somewhere else, which is in the same area in the same neighborhood, but and that's that's a proper square with uh, I mean with trees and and and. and but it's actually today it's just a crossing of roads and it, it entails that risk like saying okay you have a, a lumumba square so now stop complaining right and that that is what i wanted to point at so okay the king went once to your uh, commemoration so now stop complaining yes or, so we, we just give something that it that doesn't even mean much um, and you and when i i saw your slides of that and i mean it really was just a street sign that's yes. all it was yes. It and yet nearby, sign. you still have King Leopold's vast statue in a, in a vast park nearby. I mean, that yes. says it all, really, doesn't it? And uh, But you mentioned a very inspiring way. I loved um, the story of how the graffiti of where they would have liked the Labumba Square to be in Matenge. Um, could you tell us about the NGO that changed Google Maps? If you could tell us that in your own words, because I thought that was a rather wonderful yeah, yeah. So, so, so uh, what, what what happens is that uh, you have this square that the activists wanted to want actually to be the real Lumumba Square, and yeah, they managed to make sure that on Google Maps the unofficial one is actually the first one that pops up if you uh, go to Google Maps. So that's kind of cool because I mean, at least it circumvents what official authorities want it to be. It creates that alternative truth i would say that that alternative reality that um, that is maybe even more important than whatever street sign is on the on, on uh, nowadays on the, on the roads yeah. yeah can you remind me of the name of the the of the activist group or the ngo which had that very powerful quote that which is done for us without us is done against us yeah could could you explain that in the context of this story and the work that's being done by yeah. the officials to decolonize the, the organization is called the collective memoir colonial et lutte contre les discriminations so the name explicitly makes a connection between colonial memory and the fight against racism which is interesting because i mean it's not often that this connection is made directly indeed so, so they are a very influential group predominantly black. It's also not really an official organization and that's on purpose, but they do organize city tours, decolonial city tours. That's how it all started actually with the decolonial city tours. Okay. Um, and they organize other kinds of events. Can I tell you just about two things that are going on in the UK where I can see parallels? One is an organization called Black Poppy Rose who create, you know, the red poppy for remembrance. Well, they've created a black poppy. I say they, it's mainly one woman working incredibly hard. And she creates reefs and, and puts them on monuments to represent the contribution of black soldiers in World War One and Two. The, the idea for the British Truth Commission, I wanted to get your feedback on this, would be that actually it would be a grassroots up project rather than looking to get permission from the officials which may never happen and may be run by them for them so the idea was to tell the history the alternative history from a grassroots level through qr through recordings that are put on a website connected to a qr code that is then put on a reef 
or uh, below the statue. And I wondered what you thought about that. Actually have hearings underneath the monument, like Truth Commission human rights hearings. But to protect people, sometimes to have the recordings through a website on a QR code that people can see and hear a different version. What, what do you think of that idea? Yeah, so I like that idea. At the same time, and that, that might be connected to, the, to, the, to my enthusiasm about the Google Maps thing, uh, it's, it's ephemeral. It's uh, everything that happens online uh, can be easily deleted and is also connected. I mean, it makes us dependent on, on these smartphones and, and everything that happens online. And I think it, it would be more, I mean, without dismissing this idea, I think this idea is great. And I think we have to use this uh, neoliberal uh, digital infrastructure in order to do other things. So that's, that's great. But I also want that the physical space, the physical public space reflects those different perspectives or these uh, change of perceiving our history or this more multi-perspectivist way of looking at our history. And that means I want these monuments to be altered. I want them to change. And that's maybe what you were referring to when you talked about the graffiti. I, I just don't understand why authorities are cleaning up these monuments over and over again because they get vandalized, right? These monuments get vandalized all the time. Right. I, I mean, why put money and effort in trying to clean them up? Just leave them vandalized. I mean, that's that's just... And it is also connected to... I mean, we, we have in Europe this, this very strong ID, this very materialistic ID and static ID of trying to keep things the way they are as long as possible. And we... We don't like, um, I mean, look at gardens in England or whatever. I mean, you just don't like nature to take over or you don't like that things get messy or so it has to be, yeah, it has to be under control, right? Yes. Um, and I think we have to, to loosen control, certainly over these monuments. Um, and I think that beautiful things can happen there. I mean, in a lot of, sub-Saharan African societies where all these masks and and uh, all these uh, statues have been stolen and put in museums uh, in, in, in Europe or in America or where, wherever in the rich Western world, um, there is this idea that, that monuments or at least all these artifacts go to museums to die because they stop changing. Europeans are really obsessed with trying to fix things uh, and to, you know, I mean, that's how we standardize languages and that we say, oh, this is wrong and this is right. While people are experimenting with language all the time. And that's where I come in as a linguist. But that's also what we do with, um, yeah, I mean, when, when Europeans found in the 19th century beautiful stuff in Africa, they, they just thought like, okay, Let's take it away because these people might, I don't know, not take care of it. And not take care of it means change it or I don't know. And there, there are these in Congo, there are these traditions of these statues where every generation, um, so very old statues in wood, where every generation 
makes changes to the statue. I mean, puts stuff extra on it, like nails or pieces of cloth or... And so it's never, they never take things away. They only put more and more stuff on it. And that, that kind of becomes some kind of book um, that, that a sign, it's a symbol, but it tells a story to which every generation can add another layer. That reminds yeah. me of the Indian traditional storytelling theatre technique where the audience always gets involved with the story. And so the story mm. always changes, but it doesn't mean erasing previous stories, but it is the concept that nothing is ever static. And that's part of the problem, isn't it? People, nationalism comes under this idea of a sort of, that culture was a, a static thing and not mm -hmm. that it's always been fluid. Do you believe in a fluid or a static sense of identity for, for countries? Yeah, I mean, no, I believe that we are playful creatures but at the same time we like rules imagine kids i mean when kids are playing i think that they spend more than half of the time negotiating the rules of the game <laughs> uh, and renegotiating the rules of the game so yes. playing is 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 about trying to find common ground trying to find new yeah rules but also renegotiating them all the time because it gets boring when we just stick with the same rules all the time. And that's what happens with language too. Languages are not standardized like Lingala in, in Congo. They, they change all the time. People are renegotiating the rules of the language they speak. On a surface level, this doesn't make much sense. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not practical, right? But I mean, I, I really believe that we have to be playful again. So I really believe in that fluidity, that it's, it is inherently to us. And that there is a tension between wanting to be free in the sense of anything goes, but at the same time wanting to, I don't know, have friends, make connections, uh, be a community, which necessitates to agree on certain things. And we do that. But that doesn't mean that we want to fix these agreements into contracts, black and white. We can actually, I mean, there is no black and white in, in, in oral cultures, right? So it's, it's always about what you remember. And, and, and then, you know, I mean, we all know that sometimes I remember things differently than my friend remembers. That we were at the same party, having the same fun. And, and we, 10 years later, we, we tell the story differently. So we have different perspectives, we remember different things. Um, and that can lead to conflicts, can lead to tensions. Uh, but I think that we are equipped to, to negotiate. It's, it's that tension between being playful and improvising, and on the, on the other hand, having rules. And you also know. the idea that there's just one truth and facts. Yeah. So you, would you actually go as far as to say uh, there aren't facts? Hmm. No, I wouldn't go that far. I don't think that anything goes. I, I still believe there is a truth to be found, but I just think, think it, it resides fundamentally in relationships and not in the things that we see themselves. You perceive things from different perspectives. And so you see other things, even if it's the same thing. But there are, there are constraints. It's not that you can say, oh, I see an apple, and you say, no, I see an orange. No, I mean, it's still an 
we, we both see the same fruit, so uh, one of us must be mistaken. So, so when I tell a story, whether it's true or false, is about who listens to the story and what do they get from that story and if it connects with their real life experiences. If it doesn't, it's actually false. And in that way, we could say that the way our colonial history has been told to us until recently is false because it disconnects us. It makes us less than human beings. It doesn't really make us realize that we are all interconnected. It rather the opposite. No, there is truth, and but that truth is always negotiated, and that truth is relational, fundamentally relational. So it is about. I mean, we are human. We are primates, right? We are apes. And the big difference between other primates is that we have language, that we use signs, symbols, to convey meaning to each other, and that can be really. These symbols are, are very handy to survive. And we are using stories and symbols all the time in order to deal with the chaos of the world. But we're also changing our stories all the time. Maybe the Enlightenment or Europe or whatever happened in the 18th and 19th century is some kind of break with that constant renegotiation of reality. Maybe even, and maybe just a speculation, like the Bible. That's, that's a tradition where I was raised in. I'm a Catholic, right? I mean, I'm not a Catholic person, but I was raised in, in, in the Catholic tradition. And I learned that the Bible was canonized in, its, in, in, in the second century. So during 200 years, there was this negotiation of what stories of Jesus count as the real stories of Jesus. And still now we have four different uh, gospels. Each time the same story told from a different perspective, right? That's canonizes the four evangelists who wrote the story of Jesus. But there were many more. At a certain point, they fixed it into a book. They said, this, these are the four stories that we need to know and all the rest is irrelevant. So they stopped renegotiating the story. They stopped like retelling the story of Jesus in different ways. In this fixing of the, 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 of the gospel into the Bible. Well, you see, for instance, in, in the Jewish tradition, in the, you have this whole oral uh, segment to it, that there's this constant, until now, renegotiation, retelling, reinterpreting of, uh, of these old stories uh, in relationship to what, what's happening now, in relationship to, yeah, to, to what matters now. I'm not saying that Judaism is better than Christianity. That's not what I meant. It's just that I see that it's retelling of stories in different ways serves a purpose and it serves a purpose to create community and once you fix it and you put it and you you, you canonize it and you you break that possibility and then then hierarchy emerges power uh, structures emerge and then there is that that kind of thing like this is wrong this is right you are right you are wrong uh, i have the truth you don't have the truth as if this thing can be can be um, defined or categorized I'm finding this fascinating because you've just given a really good example of how important fluidity is as a tool of sort of conflict resolution, mm -hmm. because it allows for the ebb and flow of different and the inclusion of multiple perspectives. Mm -hmm. And, and actually what I'm hearing you say is the minute it becomes fixed, 
you're going to be in conflict, which which kind of mm -hmm. reminds me of Krish, uh, Krishnamurti. I'm not sure if you've... Yeah. He well, said that I, I, any I'm, time you put down a label or a boundary, you're going to be in conflict with somebody else. Whereas I hear that you're trying to soften that boundary through being playful. Yeah. I, I would have said that's quite a vital message, potentially, for strengthening democracy. I completely say. agree with that. I mean, I, 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 yeah, yeah. So it's really about pushing for more democracy. I think that, that democracy is failing. I mean, a lot of people think that democracy is failing right now, at least in, in the Western world. And it is because we just, that the playfulness is completely dismissed and that we generate uh, conflictuous situations uh, rather than generate relationships. And relationships are hard, right, Tamara? I mean, relationships are difficult. It's work. It's necessary work. And I think if, if, it's, if we think about it as, as something open-ended, as something, as, as, as something fluid and dynamic, you can always be open. It's not just about bowing your head to, to this, the structures of power, right? That, that, that's, that's, not, that's not a relationship, right? It's just oppression. Coming back to the beginning when you spoke of white amnesia, mm -hmm. um, and that actually, when I asked you what might be the incentive for the white population to let go of that amnesia, you were saying it's, it's more about the 1%, the people that have the power at the top, and actually, whether mm -hmm. you're white, brown, black, you know, we have far more in common than separates us. Mm -hmm. But it's the one percent. Is that? Am I getting it right? That that's correct. They are fixing a story, making our understanding of what it means to be a human being as something static, and they rely on race in order to divide people who have common interests and in order to protect their own interests. I don't want it to sound like the 1% that is some kind of specific people that you can designate as the bad guys uh, who are oppressing all the good guys. It's much more complicated than that because we are all implicated in that system. It's really about our education, what we learned, uh, what, how we learned to, to be in the world and what we consider as something that makes sense and something that doesn't make sense. So we, we have been thought, taught to, to dismiss specific things and to uh, embrace other things. And we're all part of this. So it's not about bad, white, rich people doing these uh, bad things to, to, to the rest of the world. Uh, although, I mean, white people are very well represented among the powerful of the world. But that's, that's, not, that, that's not the whole story. I mean, in order to work, Actually, the oppressed have to be part of uh, of the system. Have to be convinced. Have to be. Have to have learned that racism serves as interest. But that's not the case. I, I mean, I'm completely convinced it's not the case. I think that that we need racism in order to sleep at night, because otherwise we would just see that other people die uh, because of borders. That other people. I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense what how we can just accept the misery. Not, not wanting to, to focus all my attention on, on whiteness and, and the Western world. What you see, I mean, what the caste system does in India, and we could discuss whether the caste system, the way it works today, is actually uh, a colonial product or not. I mean, I don't know too much about this. But what I see with the caste system in India is doing exactly that. It's, it's creating that, that sense that you shouldn't care about poverty or you shouldn't care about other people living in misery. 
I basically, I mean, I spent some time of my childhood in Congo and I was taught to not care about beggars and to, to be um, insensitive to dire poverty. I think we all learn to do that and I think it's not okay. I, th I don't think it's our intuition. No, absolutely. Uh, it is what we learn to do and how we try to deal with it. And in a way, neoliberalism is some kind of new version. New, I mean, it's been there around for, for at least 40 years, but it's, it's the latest version of how to deal with these oppressive inequalities and to accept them as normal and natural. While if we are honest with ourselves, or if you ask any five-year-old kid, it's not okay. Our intuitions are saying this is really fucked up, but we are taught to, to not think that way. So, yes, so I, I hear... I hear what you're saying. And as a linguist, an, 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 did you call an ethnographic linguist? A linguistic anthropologist. This is, I might be putting my foot in it here, but I am dying to ask you with that hat on. I was talking to my friend who runs an LGBTQ NGO about, at the moment in Britain, there's 46 different definitions between male and female. And I said, but in race, we're still black, white, coloured almost, you know. <laughs> How did that happen with language? I mean, is there anything we could learn from the experience, the trans experience of getting that onto the agenda to do with race? It just seems to me that the language around race, it just, it reduces everything. Mm -hmm. It's so crude. It's, uh, surely that's still a colonial legacy. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. Certainly behavioral psychologists and evolutionary psychologists are discussing these things of, of um, whether binary thinking is just a natural feature. Uh, because, you know, we have two eyes, we have two hands. Um, I don't know. There is the moon, there is the sun, there is day and night. So there is this argument that we are naturally trying to categorize the world in two halves. Now, I don't believe, I, 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 I doubt that. Sincerely, I really doubt that. Um, and that is also just because I know uh, that gender identities uh, have not necessarily been binary all over the world. I mean, there is this the Christian legacy, let's say, and the colonial legacy that, that created this binary, that there are just women and men and that everybody has to align to specific behaviors whether as women or as men but that in other cultures that wasn't necessarily the case there were maybe five genders or eight genders or different different positions that you can take yeah. Sibu, i don't know i've just i'm just finishing the my book which is about identity and as a mixed race person and i'm i'm not sure i got the impression that you were probably a, yet another label a mixed race person yourself mm -hmm. <laughs> It's just not been my experience to be in a binary system because that's that's just created inner conflict. And um, I sort of bring my philosophy has always been I am both and yeah. I'm not either or. Mm -hmm. um, and then I found in Eastern philosophy a, a way out, which was great because it turns out, I mean, we're part of the Aristotle duality, right, wrong, either or logic. But actually in the East, there's sort of seven ways of being, of saying maybe spectrum, which like you say, sort of offers space for possibilities. And I feel like when you're talking about structural change and using language around race, that surely we need to be more playful in that area. Yeah, 
definitely. I mean, as a, as a mixed race person, of course, uh, my experience is that the binary doesn't work. That that's that's for sure. Of course, I mean, we are both raised in a world where, as a mixed race person, you are framed as an exception. It's something that, I mean, maybe they don't say that way, but in a way, we weren't supposed to happen. Uh, we are anomalies. The normal way of things is that people stick to their ethnic group, right? Um, they don't go outside of their ethnic group. So mixed raceness, I mean, we're, more and more people are mixed race. But still, I mean, that's, that's general speaking, you, you're expected to make a choice, expected to, to be part of one or the other. That's the either or logic that you were pointing at. Um, yeah, so we have to be more playful with language. At the same time, what I see is linguistically uh, in Europe is that because after the Holocaust, there was this awareness that race as a concept was super problematic and, and had uh, terrible consequences, there was this discursive muteness about race, but they changed it into speaking about ethnicity and speaking about migrants, generally speaking. Now, I argue that the binary stays intact, even if you change the words. So in an Anglo-Saxon context, race is still a word that is used. And of course, there's black and white are still very strong signifiers of some kind of opposition between, I don't know, white people and, and non-white people. But that, that's, that's whiteness stays intact. And what is opposite to whiteness is still, I mean, what, what is, is still framed as undesirable, inferior, threatening to the social order. So even if in Europe we stopped talking about race and stopped talking about black people and white people in documents, in, in, in politics, in media, that the binary is still reproduced implicitly. What happens is now, now I am a scholar who's actually saying what's going on here is race. Uh, what is going on here is whiteness. And then I get the critique like, oh, you are reestablishing the binary that we are so hardly, so hard trying to deconstruct uh, by using other words. And what I'm seeing is like, mm. you know, actually, Changing words can help and is a first step towards changing our mind or changing the way we think. But it's not a guarantee. It's not that if you just change the words, everything else will change by, by definition. That's at least is not what I observe. In France, you have that thing of Francais de Souche, which is like the real French people, and then you have what they call migrants. Well, usually migrants are, uh, yeah, that's what they call, even if it's the third generation, they are migrants. And it actually reproduces that same idea of blood and soil that is very racial without speaking about race, but saying that people are third generation migrants, who by the way, actually came to France when, when, when the, the territory where they came from was still part of the French empire. In the, in, in the Netherlands, for instance, they make a difference between migrants from Europe, Polish migrants, Western foreigners, let's say, but then you have non-Western foreigners. But in that group, they also counted the people who come from the, from the Dutch Caribbean, who have been part of the Dutch empire for centuries. 
Well, this is it. I mean, I remember when I first heard the term um, third generation immigrant, and it's like, well, when do you stop being an immigrant? But then these words have changed always over the years, haven't they? I remember hearing mm -hmm. the global majority, which I've heard recently, and which is because I actually this can often be about being a minority or a majority mm -hmm. as a mindset. Mm -hmm. So suddenly, even though you're a minority in, or I'm a minority in Britain, I'm a majority globally and, and this mm -hmm. reframing and playfulness with language. Mm -hmm. Do you hold hope for what's going on at the moment with some of the language? I mean, I certainly found since Black Lives Matter that I, um, even if it's the word gaslighting, but just different words that have actually allowed me to express my experience that I felt but didn't know how to put into words. I completely agree with that. So I, I really think that language is crucial in, in, in the efforts that we are, I mean, in what we're trying to do. And for me, language and, and the statues, like symbols, language is a symbol, it's the same thing. So we're just using symbols, we're using language in order to convey a certain meaning. And we are succeeding in a way to, to tell another story and to, 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 to point at blind spots, if I may say that way. To, to, to make things, yeah, to, to acknowledge things. And I agree completely with you. I mean, for me too, in the last decades, a new kind of words have emerged that help me to, to talk about specific things. Now, at the same time, I'm also scared of how that language can just be, yeah, can just serve the same social order of things. Because I see it in the Dutch language, I see it in the French language, how words have been changing all the time, every ten, ten, every other 10 years, we change the words we use to refer to these, to people of color. So people of color is like a new word now. I'm sure being 20 years time, we'll have another word and people of color will not be okay. Uh, so, and the global minor, majority, etc. To me, it's very important to speak about whiteness as an ideology, not as a characteristic of specific people coming from the northwest of the Eurasian landmass. No, I'm talking about an ideology, an ideology that that connects specific meanings, values to specific signs, and these signs are being light skin, uh, which also means that black people who are like me, who are mixed race, are more valuable than dark-skinned Black people. It also means that spe speaking a specific way, having a specific register of language that is connected to, I don't know, private schools in England or something like that, gives yeah. you more value. Specific clothes that you wear, specific car, where your houses, all these things are all connected to whiteness. And of course, Phenotypes, so the physical appearance of looking like someone who is, I don't know, who has recent ancestors in the northwest of uh, the Eurasian landmass. I mean, that, that helps, but that's not even necessary in a way to become white. It's not even, it's, it's, it's at least not sufficient because a lot of people who appear white, who have pale skin, blue eyes, even blonde hair, if they don't have the right ancestry, not the right language, not the right clothes, not the right friends, not the right partners, they fall out of whiteness. So they, they, do, they, they lose their access to whiteness. I, I know that from people who are basically white in the, in the imagination, but just because they have the wrong circle of friends, 
in specific contexts can be perceived as not really white uh, or as ambiguously white or doubtful white. So, and on the other hand, we see also a lot of people of color and that's throughout the whole history of colonialism. People of color have been part of the power structures, not, not a majority. They've not been like, they gained through different strategies, they can get access to the white elites. That has been the case in the 19th, I mean, throughout history. What I want to disrupt is that idea that there are some cluster of people, some, some kind of racial group or ethnic group or whatever group of people who are responsible for everything. What I want to say, no, it's about an ideology that permeates everything. And that an ideology that, that we have to, we have to fight against an ideology not against people. And in order to disrupt the binary thinking, we have to disrupt that ideological thinking. And whiteness is crucial, Erin, because it's whiteness that creates the binary, not white people. So that gives us a sort of strategy. Well, it doesn't give us a strategy, but it says where we need to push for change. Yes. And where do you see the hope? Is it from the grassroots? Is it from above? I mean, again, is it where, where, when you look at Belgium and other things going on in Europe, do you see hope? Yeah, actually, I see hope in these micro encounters. I see hope in just daily life, in, in how kids at school interact with each other, how people make friends, how relationships I don't see hope when I look at politics. I don't see hope when I look at media discourses. But when I just see people having fun together, making music together, making love together, dancing together, I see, I mean, look at this. This is what, if, if, if politics are not interfering, that's what we do as people. We come together and we, have, we, try, to, we try to have fun together. Um, we, we try to make the best out of it. The divide and rule of history that hasn't been taught in our schools, so many people don't know about the strategy of divide and rule. Mm -hmm. that's, that's what I'm hearing you say that we yeah. need to break out of. Yes. I mean, I've been working in, 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 let's say, white institutions for decades now, and I don't really believe we can change anything from the inside. What I believe is that we can use these institutions to do other things. So I use my privileges of being part of these institutions like academia in order to do other things next to this institution, in order to create new institutions. Maybe the institutions of the right world, but new places of commonality, new places of encounter, new places. And in a way, I hope that through our generations, specific institutions that are now prestigious and legitimate will lose their their meaning or their legitimacy and other places that we will recreate will be the places that matter yeah so so that's that's what i'm kind of putting my hope in it's another thing i come up against all the time in britain is well we're not as bad as belgium we're not as bad as holland we weren't as bad with our colonialism how would you answer that it's not a competition <laughs> that's what i would say <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the UK is definitely just as bad as Belgium. <laughs> um, interesting thing, because Europe is not a homogenous whole. So you have all these different ways of colonialism. That, and, and, and the fact that you have this diversity of colonial ways, you have these 
finger pointing. I mean, that's what even Belgium they do too. I mean, even within Belgium, there's between the Flemish and the Walloon, they are blaming each other of being the real colonials. And then you have like, yeah, Holland, and everybody's pointing at at, at another or two in, in order to, to look good in the process. So at least what this tells me, what you just told me, when, when British people or officials are saying, yeah, but Belgium is worse or France is worse. So, so they are actually aware that there is a problem uh, and they try to look good in the process. Um, everybody was implicated in that story. I mean, at least all the elites were implicated in that story. What, what, I, what, what can I say? I mean, the UK has, has had such a tremendous impact on the world, not only as the UK, also through America, but, but America is kind of kind of an extension of, of that empire. I, I think it's weird to think like we're not so bad. Um, it's kind of weird because who cares about Belgium anyway? The biggest in the class is UK and France and company. I mean, that's absolutely for me. It's very important if you do ethnographic work to self-reflect and to, uh, to think about your positionality uh, and how your, your presence impacts what's happening on the ground. It's really important. I mean, that's, that brings us back to that relationality. So yes. we create knowledge together. It's never about the other. Actually, it's about us. It's an interaction. So that's, that's, that's more or less what I, what I want to point at when I speak of white amnesia. It's this selective uh, forgetting and uh, this, this ignorance about how complex the colonial encounter was. Um, but at the same time, also completely forgetting the violence that was implicated in it the forms of ignorance that exist and that we, we I mean, we, we learned to be ignorant about these things. Um, and the fact that we dismiss the fact that colonialism was fundamentally a story of interactions between different cultures, of course, a story of terrible things that we really have to acknowledge, which are also part of the amnesia is that we also forgot all the terrible things. But we also forgot all the great things. So the only thing that we remember, or the way that we remember, is as if that everything emerged from Europe. And I think a great example is, is, is the way that we think about, when we think about what happened in the last 500 years, uh, we all agree that, I don't know, that we got tobacco from America, uh, that we got coffee from, from the Muslims. I mean, we agree that we shared food and drinks and smokes. Um, we even agree that we shared, that, that we impacted each other on levels of music, uh, cultural practices, even linguistically, although there the dominance of Europe is, is, um, is, is mostly acknowledged. But we stopped thinking about the colonial encounter as an interaction when it's about intellectual contributions, as if intellectual contributions emerged out of thin air in Europe, suddenly, by coincidence, right at the time when the colonial encounter happened in the 16th and 17th century, suddenly in the 17th century, enlightened thinkers emerged and came up with great ideas out of nowhere. And that that is part of white amnesia, really. this complete dismissing of the fact that, that the intellectual contributions of history uh, are a result, are, are a consequence of the colonial encounter. The consequence is that, that everything that is valuable is perceived as white, and everything that is not valuable is perceived as non-white. 
completely dismissing yeah the the the, um, the fact that colonialism was primarily a moment of enormous cultural exchange also of oppression of course um but but also of inspiration so that's 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 more or less what i what i want to point at when i speak of white amnesia it's this selective uh, forgetting and uh, this this ignorance about how complex the colonial encounter was i mean the white population has learned and that started like in the late 17th century has learned to think of themselves as white i mean they didn't think of themselves as white before um that that that, that is part of the the secularization of uh, christianity uh, before that they were christians and if you converted to christianity you were a christian bro brother or sister but then suddenly um when there were suddenly more <laughs> non-European Christians than European Christians, there's where whiteness came into the picture and that people started to think about themselves, not in religious terms, but in so-called scientific, biological terms as white people. Now, the, 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 the whiteness and white amnesia doesn't serve white people. Uh, it, it, it breaks the potentiality to connect with people who are oppressed, just like you. So um, the poor Europeans, oppressed of Europeans, uh, were encouraged actually to, to not see that their interests and the interests of, I don't know, the Aboriginal people in Australia and indigenous people in, in America and Africans was actually not their interest, that, that they could gain access to power by oppressing others and these other, and that it was completely okay to oppress others because they were racially inferior. Um, that is what, what, what has been, I mean, basically just taught to, to, to people. And it dehumanizes not just the racialized other, it dehumanizes white people too, because it, it dismisses their intuition. It, it makes the fact that your intuition is telling you, whoa, this is not okay. This is, this is just a fellow human being being treated like worse than an animal. That, that's, not, that's not okay. That's your intuition, but you are taught to, 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 to not trust that intuition and to say, no, 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 you are white, you're superior, and therefore this is okay. An example could, could, uh, could make that clear how whiteness dehumanizes white people too, uh, in different ways than, than racialized others. I mean, let's be clear about that, that in the grand scheme of things, if you're white in a white world, I mean, you're better off, but that doesn't mean that you're not losing your humanity. Everybody does. The whole racial logic has, I mean, is sustained today in this migration logic. Let's be honest. I mean, in the 19th and early 20th century, people could just move to another continent if they wanted to. You didn't need a visa. You didn't need a, a passport. I mean, you need to be healthy. When people were, uh, were assessed at Staten Island, they checked their health, but they didn't check if they had papers, if they had documentation. Nobody checked documentation. They just asked, what's your name? And you can invent a name, and then you were that person, period. That's how it went. And tens of millions of Europeans have moved out of terrible circumstances in Europe during that time, seized their opportunity to go to America or wherever. The laws, the international migration laws, the way they work today, have been constructed after the wave of independence, basically in the, in the 70s. In the 70s, that's where the new laws, I mean, the passports exist since 1920, so that's about 100 years. 
but it's only in the 70s that we try. I mean, before the, before the 70s, migrant workers could just take take a plane or take a bus, whatever, and go to another country and work there. There was no legislation, really. My father tells me, I mean, he, they could just leave Congo and come to Belgium. No, I mean, they just had, they had, they needed an idea at that time, but there was no legal framework that was trying to limit migration. That started in the 70s. So that means like after the independence wave, and that was specifically to stop all these post-colonial people to come to Europe or to, to go to America. So we think about this as normal, but that, that is the infrastructure that we've built today, like in the last 50 years, in order to sustain a, a global political economy that existed in the 19th and 20th century, which still means that Europeans basically can move to India or wherever if they want to, but that Indians or Africans cannot do it in the other way. So, so, so we, we just sustain that, 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 that order. It's, it, it appears normal because now there are migrants, there are foreigners, there are other nationals, they have their own states that have been created by Europe, by the way. I mean, Congo didn't exist without European interference. The word migrant is really across the press everywhere. It's a very dehumanising word. And, and, and then I think of the sort of colonists, the colonialists that also went out in search of greener economic pastures. And apparently that's what differentiates a migrant from a refugee is that they're looking for economic gain. It's like, well, yes, that's a natural instinct too. If you don't have any water, you're going to go in search of water. But these words have become very loaded, haven't they? So yeah, migrants, migrants, immigrants. I mean, that's just the way. I mean, it's, it's kind of sad that we think that specific people have the right to migrate. They're so-called refugees. But if you migrate for economic reasons, it's not legitimate. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And yeah, it means that someone who is living in war-torn Congo cannot move to Europe. And these people are dismissed all the time. They don't get permits. It's sad. I mean, I don't know where I have to stop or end this. No, is no, the dehumanization on both sides, because that's not our instinct is to keep no. keep away from people, to feel threatened by people, to always feel that there's not enough so that we can't share or it's just not instinctive, is it? No. So in that way, we are all losing our humanity by that relationship breaking yeah. down. And, and you may you may you may think because I mean, it's, it's, it's universal in a way that people self-identify as the people and the other people on the other side of the river or the other side of the mountains are considered as the others or as the weirdos and stuff like that. But as long as they are over there, once there is an encounter, I'm not saying there are no tensions, but usually we just find a way to avoid war. That's what we usually do as human beings. And the indigenous people, I mean, recently there was Thanksgiving in, 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 uh, in, in the US. And Thanksgiving is also really rooted in that story of these people, these pilgrims who were starving. They were looking at winter, winter was coming and they, they didn't have any enough food. And they were, they were really in a precarious situation. And the indigenous people helped them, these newcomers. And they had like this meeting together in November for the start of the big of the big winter of the the, the real cold of the winter uh, and shared food together and basically thanksgiving is about thanking the indigenous people to have saved them 
Of course, that story is completely marginalized in the whole Thanksgiving uh, euphoria, but it's a super important story. I mean, even if you say, like, yeah, there was war, of course there was war, but what we need is to focus on these stories, not on the war stories. Absolutely. These stories are much more interesting in order to, to try to, to, to build the stories. Yeah, the stories that bring us together. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why, you know, whatever happens under the monuments, um, I'm hoping, you know, how you edit the story in search of common ground um, is really important, isn't it? It's, it's, it's the most important thing. So thanks so much. You've been amazing. I don't know how you managed to talk so eloquently for so long. I'm very grateful and I'm glad it's all on record. Thank you for the invitation tomorrow.